Welcome to the Hills Church Podcast. Hills Church is a four-square church in Laguna Hills, California. Visit us on the web at hillschurchoc.com. And so, between earthquakes, uh, I spent uh, my holiday kind of doing a few things around the house, but mostly just watching reruns of ESPN. Uh, I think I got caught up on the last 20 years of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Um, I was glad to see Joey Chestnut defending his title, although what seemed like kind of a interesting thing maybe to try when I was 25 Right now, like 71 hot dogs. I don't know that I've had 71 hot dogs in the last 10 years, uh, let alone in 10 minutes. Um, and, uh, but one of the things that I was able to watch this week um, also is one of my all-time favorite sports memories. Now, I'm glad that we don't have a lot of guests here today who are like, um, you know, does he always talk about sports? And you guys are like, yeah, he always talks about sports. Um, so, so there are a couple, there are a couple like lifetime uh, memories for me, things that are etched into my, my sports consciousness. Uh, one of them, unfortunately, is the Lakers' loss to the Celtics um, in Boston Garden that just was devastating to see the Celtics come back. Um, one of them was uh, Lynn Swan's catch in the Super Bowl against uh, the Rams in the Coliseum. One of them was uh, um, my brother and my dad and I were actually present for uh, Kirk Gibson's uh, game one home run against the, the Oakland A's. But one of the other ones from my uh, life was the All-Star Game, baseball All-Star Game in 2008. In 2008, uh, this young man by the name of uh, Josh Hamilton uh, hit, a, 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 at the time, you know, the, the Home Run Derby is kind of this little sideshow, and it was the last uh, All-Star Game that would ever be played at uh, Yankee Stadium. The next year, it was destroyed, and the new uh, Yankee Stadium was opened. But he had come in on a really hot street. And they were debating all the different people who might win the, the home run contest that year. And while he was mentioned as, you know, maybe one of the favorites, no one could imagine what began to happen. Uh, Josh Hamilton invited his 71-year-old American Legion baseball coach to throw... Um, to throw his batting practice pitches. And that year, Josh Hamilton hit 28 home runs in the first round of the Home Run Derby. The next closest was nine. And many of his home runs, he had three of them that were over 540 feet. I mean, he put them off of the back wall, uh, on the uh, on the upper level of Yankee Stadium, on uh, in the right field, um, not just the bleachers, but the the the, the right field stack. Um, and what was so heartwarming about this was that you had to know some of his some of his backstory. 
His backstory was that he was the number one draft pick in 19, uh, 1999. Came out of a small little country town in North Carolina and grew up very uh, religious, God-fearing family. Um, this was a, a can't-miss project uh, prospect. And uh, in 2001, he suffered his uh, first injury. He was in a car accident with, where he was injured pretty severely along with his parents. And while everybody recovered, obviously a serious accident like that sets you back. And what happened was um, to deal with the process, it was the first time that he'd ever taken any kind of painkiller and immediately it hooked him. Um, he was an addict for, for day, from day one and started doing all of the things that addicts did, steal from everybody close to you, uh, live homeless, rambling the streets. Uh, his drug dealer was also um, a tattoo uh, artist and, and started just covering himself with, uh, with tattoos. That was more, in, later on he would say, more of a way to mark his own pain rather than to commemorate um, different events in his life. And during that time he he came across uh, a man who just took an interest in him, a man by the name of Bobby Caldwell, who just started to, to love on him and to be Jesus to him, kind of saw his life begin to turn around. And in 2007, he re-entered the major leagues after not doing anything for more than four years, like taking four years completely off. Uh, in baseball, if you have four weeks off, it takes you four months, they say, to get back um, in the certain kind of skill level that it needs. And seeing that story that night, knowing Josh's story, he would go on two years later to win the American League MVP. He also faced some ongoing tragedy. Those of us who have dealt with addiction in the past realize that that thing comes back up to bite you, and it did three other times throughout his life. In fact, he had one less than memorable season uh, playing for our own, uh, playing for our own California Angels. But I remember watching, and, and Jamie's like, I'm like, babe, I'm watching one of my favorite sports memories of all time. And the first question she asked me, she goes, "Are you crying?" And I said, "Yes, I am," because don't we love a turnaround story. We love stories where people take advantage of the opportunity that God gives them to respond to His grace. And as we're walking through the book of Acts, we are at probably one of the most significant turnaround stories that gets captured in the Scripture. There's a story of this young man named Saul, comes from this uh, kind of off-coastal town by the name of, of Tarsus that is in middle, uh, that, that is in um, southeast Turkey. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 1. As you're turning there or opening your phones, finding the uh, information there, the, the message notes are there. We're going to look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1 to 6. One of the things that I love about Josh Hamilton's story was not only did he 
Lord bring this man named Bobby Caldwell into his life. He had a praying grandmother. And it was, he would attribute the witness of this man and the prayers of his grandmother from whom he stole everything while he was an addict to his, to his turnaround. It's interesting how often God uses people in our lives when he wants to turn things around. So in Acts chapter 9, we pick up, I'm going to kind of skip a little bit here in verse 1. I'm going to jump in where it says, And Saul, the gentleman whom we're looking at today, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, imagine your kind of map of the Middle East. You kind of have Jerusalem down um, kind of south-central in, uh, in Israel. And about uh, 300 miles away is now what had been the capital of Syria, which is Damascus. This is not a, a short journey. What he's really asking for permission to do is to take a militia with the authority of the priests and the religious leaders to begin to chase down people who have put their faith in the idea that Jesus Christ from Nazareth was the, was the Messiah. It said that if he found any of there who belonged to the way, that he might take them as prisoners and bring them back to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. This thing that was called the way, that's how they referred to the believers in Jesus, these Jews who had, who had believed that the, promise, that the one that God had promised was finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That it was a new way of thinking. It was a new way of living. One that was not only bound by the religious traditions and rituals, but it was bound in a new approach to life. In John 14, uh, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way. And this group of people that had now kind of turned Jerusalem upside down, they were being referred to as those who belong to the way. This new way of living and this new Messiah who had emerged. The problem is, is that this idea of the way started to become a threat. We've already read how on one day 3,000 people believed in Jesus and became followers of the way. We believe that, uh, we read that just a few days later, another presentation of the hope and truth that is found when people would believe that Jesus was the Messiah that 5,000 people 
We've read that all throughout this whole process over the last few weeks, not just our weeks, but in a very short period of time there in Jerusalem, that thousands and thousands of people were turning to believe in the fact that Jesus was the one that God had promised and that there was redemption from sin and there was hope for eternity if they would believe in that simple truth and in the power of the resurrection. It was a very short period of time that this whole city was turned upside down. And anytime something gets turned upside down, it causes a disruption. It causes a disruption to the status quo because that we know that there are people who benefit from the way that things are currently. We know that it was a threat to the societal system because it begins to attack kind of the closed-mindedness and the bias that people inherently have when you have committed yourself to living and to acting a certain kind of way. And so this young man named Saul decides that he's going to do something about this. Now, this is why it's important to understand somebody's background and where they come from. Because a couple things that we need to understand about Saul of Tarsus is that Saul came from a very influential family. He's a very, uh, a very impressive lineage. What it means by that is that to the Jews, it was very, very important that you would be able to kind of track your family tree all the way uh, as far as that you could, as far as that you could go. How many of you in here uh, are and, uh, on Ancestry.com kind of people? Yeah? Yes? No? And for last year about this time, boy, it was a big big thing around uh, uh, our house, and uh, every once in a while we kind of go, and Jamie was able to track uh, part of her family tree back um, to the early 1700s, 1600s, 400 years, Um, and um, so we see how the the power of relationships and interconnectedness begins to happen. there was a prestige in being able to track your, your family's legacy as far back as you could. And they were able to trace, Saul's family could trace himself back to the original tribe of Benjamin. In fact, they took so much pride in being able to trace that back that they named their son most likely after one of the most famous Benjamites in Israel's history, the very first king of Israel, King Saul. He comes from a very important place. Tarsus is on a major trade route. It's kind of like um, how, the, how the city of commerce is close enough to the ports of L.A., that it becomes kind of the hub, the gathering point to be able to distribute all these different locations. At the time, Tarsus was that kind of location. It was close enough to the coastal part of the Mediterranean to be able to take in shipments and that then could be dispersed throughout the Middle East, down into, up into Europe, uh, over into the Baltics, and even as far south as into Africa. In fact, later we know that Saul was known for having a trade. Um, who, who here knows what, was, what Saul's trade was? Joshua was. Tent maker. That's exactly right. Which you could see if you were on this major trade route, 
how being a tent maker would be something that would be a very lucrative kind of business when you're always dealing with travelers. But it's not only that. Tarsus was one of these cities in the ancient world that was known for having a... um, Its reputation was for being a very knowledgeable city. In fact, in these days, Athens and Alexandria in Europe were known as being the two largest education centers. That They were the seats for philosophy and for wisdom and for training and for education. Alexandria was named after Alexander the Great who conquered the city. Well, one of the other major universities of the ancient world and one of the largest libraries that existed at the time was also in Tarsus. Saul was probably then had the best opportunity for the best education that anyone could um, have in those days. He also had a pretty impressive resume. First of all, that Saul was a freeborn Roman citizen. Now, unless you were born of Rome, citizenship was something that you had to attain. Either you had to purchase it, either you had to earn it through a battle or for achievements um, in expanding the empire. And we don't know how Saul's family was able to obtain their citizenship, but somewhere down the line, someone already had so that Saul himself was not one who had to purchase or earn it. He was already born with that citizenship, a, a privilege that was not extended to just everyone. But within his local Jewish community, even though Saul was not a priest or a Levite who um, came from the tribe of Levi, the people that would generally minister at the temple, he was a Pharisee. That means that he combined his secular education with a religious education in his own culture, educated in the legal and the philosophical and the scriptural study of the scripture which qualifies him not only as a rabbi, as a teacher, but also as a judge, someone to whom that they would be able to bring and ask for opinions and rulings on certain situations that would happen in their community. In fact, he was not only just a regular Pharisee. Saul studied under this man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel is traced all throughout Israel's history as being one of the seven most influential rabbis ever in Israel. In fact, most of what we understand about the uh, practice of Judaism in our day goes all the way back to these seven rabbis that start from the Babylonian captivity that go just to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And Gamaliel is one of these seven most influential shapers of even what we understand modern Judaism to be today. It was like Saul had this Ivy League education with a one-on-one mentor. It's interesting, though, because Gamaliel was known for kind of being an inclusive, kind of a, a, a liberal approach. And it's interesting how people, when they don't grow up in Jerusalem, you can imagine that there's probably not a huge Jewish population in Tarsus. And so has anybody here ever kind of been made fun of for not being fitting in the right way? 
that doesn't make you more welcoming or accepting of people. What does it make you do? It makes you want to become more, more exclusive. It makes you want to become more restrictive. And I think that that's what begins to happen in the life of Paul. I think Paul takes this kind of make Israel great again stance, right? Where he says um, that what we need to do is to stamp out this threat that is from this group of people who believe that this guy from Nazareth was the one that God had promised generations before. It's not a giant leap to think that Saul was involved in the discussions of all of the things that have just taken place in Jerusalem in the previous few weeks. Remember, Peter and John are arrested for doing something well. They're threatened by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to stop doing what they're doing because it's causing too much an uproar. It's not unlikely that Saul was a qualified participant in those discussions and probably was not very happy with his mentor when his mentor is recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 7, when Gamaliel says, just let Peter and John go. They're not going to cause us any more problems. Saul so probably took approach that just says, oh man, you don't know what you're talking about. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this. In fact, last week we talked about Stephen's death and what we read in the story is that Saul was not only one of the observers, he was one of the people who gave permission for those things to be able to take place. In fact, he says here in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 3, And on that day, a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men mourned deeply for Stephen. But look at this. But Saul began to do what to the church? Destroy. And look at, what it, look at what it, how it describes his actions. He went from house to house. He drug off both men and women. And he put them in prison. Now he wants license and permission from the religious establishment to pursue these people who are now scattered out of Jerusalem. And he wants to extend the boundaries of Jewish oversight to the very furthest expanses beyond the physical boundaries of Israel as a nation to begin to stamp this kind of thing out. When he tells his story later in front of the king of Israel, Paul says that he became obsessed. Let's see if I've got the verse here. John, can you go to the next slide for me, please? Sorry. Yep. It says that he became obsessed with persecuting them, that he hunted them down. Those are his own words. Now he's on his way to Damascus. How many of you ever have had somebody like, just really make you angry. And does time make it go away or does time tend to make you more angry? Imagine you have permission now to do the very thing that you want to do. 
It's not going to make you be more kindly riding on a horse 300 miles to get to Damascus. In fact, what are you probably thinking the whole way while you're there? I'm going to take care of some business. Because we've got to stop this kind of foolishness. Now the story changes. Because as Saul gets close to his destination, Jesus interrupts him. This entire encounter is interesting because the militia that accompanied Saul heard a voice, heard the voice that Saul heard, but they couldn't see anything of Jesus' appearance. And when Saul is telling the story again later in his life, he shares something that is kind of left out of Luke's original account. That Jesus also said to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the, the goads. And you're like, what is a goad? It's probably what you think it is. A, a goad is a, is a prod that was used to move livestock along. In fact, it was usually stuck in kind of the rear hindquarters of large beasts of burden like oxen or cattle to keep them moving. And obviously, when they would get stuck, what would they do? They would kind of kick, kick back. What are these things? What, what did Jesus mean then when he's saying, Saul, it's hard for you to keep kicking against the goat, meaning that you're not going to stop getting prodded. Why do you keep reacting or resisting to it? What was it that, that might be implied that Saul was reacting against? Maybe he was reacting against the way that these believers in Jesus lived. Scripture says that they were bold, yet they were humble the scripture said that they had favor with all of the people but they hadn't earned that place they hadn't earned that right to have favor and to have privilege in fact there was no consequence for their rebellion and it continued to grow even in spite of persecution it was growing because Everyone in this movement called the way was equal, and that is not fair. Anybody who has raised kids understands the fairness principle. See, life is not fair when you feel you have earned your place and someone else hasn't. I think... I think I think Saul was irritated with the way that they died. Stephen, instead of defending himself and begging for mercy, what did he do? The same thing that Jesus did. When Jesus was on the cross, what were some of his last words when he looked at those who, were, who had crucified him? He said what? Father, forgive them. And it's interesting that Stephen, with his last words, asked God to do the exact same thing for those who were taking his life. Maybe he was irritated by his own unanswered questions about Jesus. Could this humble laborer from the Galilee really be the Messiah? Like, that's it? Like, that's what we've been waiting thousands of years for? 
these seem to be similar to the responses that people give as their excuses for not responding to Jesus. Right? Well, if God was love, what about all of the dying babies? Or what about all of the uh, wars that go on? How come he doesn't do something about it? I can't follow Jesus because when I was younger, so-and-so was injured in a car accident and they never recovered. I suffered these kind of abuses as a child and no loving God would let anybody go through that. There is all of these things that people react to and they're not reacting in my opinion and in my experience just to the experience. What's happening is God is kind of prodding them along to get them to turn and to face and to pay attention to what is the opportunity that is being offered to them to respond to the love and grace of God. And instead, they would rather be obstinate and arrogant in their anger and in their fear. Because we want to make believing in Jesus a system when it's really a relationship. Let me give you some quick thoughts about what happens and why turnarounds begin to happen in people's lives. Number one is that God is actually continuing to pursuing people. He pokes and he prods and whatever it takes to get your attention. And wherever you are angry with God, I promise you this, he's going to keep poking at it. He keeps poking at it because he wants to try to get your attention. Because so many of us are so stubborn in making sure we don't turn around. But nevertheless, God keeps coming after us. The second thing is that people can be blinded to God. There's a kind of blindness that takes place when you just don't care and you're not religious and you are the... The, the Lord of your own life. I do the things that make me feel good. I do the things that maybe benefit the people around me. But we don't live with a sense of, of greater significance where we're always trying to prove somebody. And like the prodigal son, at some point in our lives, we find ourselves in a situation that says, how did I get here? But there's also a spiritual blindness. That maybe we're so committed to this kind of religious way of proving our worth. We talk about it all the time at Hills Church. That we have to work for love. That we have to earn our acceptance. And when other people don't match the same, that same kind of rule or live by those same kind of boundaries, it's frustrating for us. Because we feel like we're owed. And we can't see how faithful God has been to us that he's never failed us what we learn about Paul's story is that your past doesn't disqualify you from God's grace Paul was a murderer obsessed by his own by his own confession obsessed with stomping this thing why do people get so uptight about this kind of stuff? But there was something that he was reacting to that just says, this can't be right. 
because that means that the rest of my life has been has been what? Wrong. The great story of Saul is that no one's beyond the love and forgiveness of God. And lastly, your past doesn't disqualify you from future usefulness. I love what God says about Saul before Saul realizes it. God says about Saul, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentile and their kings and to the people of Israel. There is no one in the world at this time that would think that Saul of Tarsus would have any kind of significant contribution to the way. In fact, if you were a believer in Jesus at the time, who was the last person that you wanted to encounter? Who was the person that you would be least likely to trust, that you didn't want to see coming your way? Is this guy? I'm sure that throughout his life that people continue to view him with skepticism. In fact, one of the things I like about Paul is that when you read about all of the locations and cities that he went to, he never pastored a significantly sized church. He was always in arguments with people who didn't agree with him. He was always being chased out of town. There's nobody who would look on Saul's life and say, that guy's destined for greatness. But we see how God is at work. And let me tell you why I think God is at work this way. Jamie and, and uh, June were having a discussion uh, the other day about the three kinds of relationships that people need to have in their lives. That there's always somebody that you are mentoring. There's somebody who is mentoring you. And there's somebody who's kind of partnering with you. And I do agree with that, but I want to talk to you about also three other types of relationships that you need in your life. The relationships that God uses to shape your life. And some of you who, if you're a manager in business, if you are somebody who works with people ongoingly, I want you to, to write these three things down because I think they're going to be really, really helpful for you. The first is that you, everybody needs an example to follow. For Saul, could I suggest that that example was Stephen? Saul observed Stephen, who was a man who was not all that much different than him. He was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning that while he was Jewish by blood, culturally he was, he was influenced by Greek, uh, by, by, by the philosophy of, of, of the educational system of the, of the Greek world. Saul living in Tarsus, having exposed to the greatest education of the time. Stephen probably was a young man who carried some of those things. But Saul didn't see him as an equal of him. And one of the things that must have enraged Paul was that when we look at the, the story that Stephen tells of Israel and their background and how they missed God. 
That must have enraged Saul because that was not his perspective at all. And Roman and, and Acts 8.1 says that Saul approved of Stephen's murder. But I don't think standing there watching Stephen stoned to death ever left Saul. The dignity with which Stephen lived and the dignity with which he died and the ability that Stephen had to ask God to forgive those who were taking his life. Many times I wonder as we go through the rest of the book of Acts and we see Paul's life being threatened. I wonder if he reflected on Stephen's own example for his life. And we all need somebody in our life who is an example to us. An example of faithfulness. An example of steadfastness. An example of humility. Because later Paul would write to some people who knew him. And he said... Follow my example because I'm doing what? Because I'm following Christ. Whatever is beneficial in me that you see is really because I'm trying to become more and more like Christ. Now that I've hit my, my 50s, um, one of the things that was great on our trip back to Nashville was encountering some of our our old youth group members. And having worked with students so many times throughout my life, it's interesting as they're grown and as they're raising families on their own. Because I look back at the examples that I had in my life. I could list you a million of them. I've told you many times the story of, of Jim Rhodes, my young life leader in high school, who Jim still, to this day, even when we moved back to California, he, he didn't even remember me. And yet he still is an example to me of godliness and what a husband is and how to love your wife just from what I saw from him as a young married man. I worked with him for him for two years when I was in college and I saw the integrity with which he conducted his business and still at 53 years old as I'm looking to somebody who's probably just, gosh, John's age, younger than John. I still remember him as being somebody who was an example to me. I'll tell you the most humbling thing is when people contact me from my past and they say that I've been that for them. Because I'm the one that knows all my failures. I'm the one that knows all my lack of being able to measure up. They always remind us that you never know who's watching. And I encourage you today to do two things. Find an example to follow. And be an example to follow. Second, this is an odd kind of name, the, the assignation. Or it, it's the only word that I could find that talks about when you have an assignment with someone or an appointment with someone. Let me go back to the story and quickly read this little section. In Damascus, where Paul was headed, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, 
he has seen a man named Ananias and placed his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and the harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority, the chief priest to arrest all those who call on your name. Isn't it funny? Remember what I've told you before, how I know when God is speaking to me? What, do I, what, what have I said to you in the past? I know that God speaks to me when I do what? When I argue. And what's Ananias doing? Arguing. Paul, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name. Then Ananias went. One of the most powerful Simple phrases in all the Bible. Can I ask you this? What happens if Ananias doesn't? What happens if he stays home? What if he says, yeah, no. I mean, we look at Paul now with 2,000 years of, of history. But in that moment, the man that God assigned to be used on his behalf has to say yes. And he did. And he placed his hands on Saul. And he said this, Jesus who sent me, sent me so that you would do two things. I love this. That he would see again and what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking food, he regained his strength. There are people that God has assigned to you, either you for them or them for you. I I, I need you to get this. It's not necessarily a lifelong friendship. It's not necessarily a, a, a... a forever kind of thing. But in this moment, God chose the right guy for a specific task that had to be accomplished so that his will will be fulfilled. And Ananias went. I think some of the hardest things that we do in our lives is understanding when God has given someone an assignment with us. Because Paul could have rejected him as well. I think that it's important that you understand who God has assigned to you and who you've been assigned to. That's why I think sometimes church is so important. I don't always understand this this chemistry thing, and I've already told you many times that probably more times than not, as a as a pastor, I'm going to disappoint you or frustrate you more than I will kind of, I don't know, accomplish whatever needs to be accomplished but i'll tell you what i take it sovereignly significant that god has assigned us to be in the same place and i know that what god wants to do can't be done if neither of us went lastly you need an advocate 
This advocate is the name Barnabas. In Acts chapter 9, as we get to the end of Saul's story, we see, and Saul came to Jerusalem. And he tried now to do what? Did he go back to the priest, to the temple? No. Who did he go to? His new people. And they were what? Not real happy about this idea. Because they were not believing. What was the problem? What, 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 didn't the, what didn't the other disciples believe? That he was a disciple. They thought maybe he was Serpico, right? Trying to, although I say that and a third of the people in the room don't know who Serpico is. Um, uh, some undercover guy, right? But Barnabas, but Barnabas, we've met Barnabas before. Does anybody remember about Barnabas, this guy called Joseph, a Levite from the island of Cyprus, another Hellenistic Jew, another person who understood where Paul came from, understood how hard the change was that was being asked for Paul to make, and needed Paul needed someone to stand up for him and to say, this guy's okay. So Barnabas took him to the disciples and told the story of how the Lord had spoken to him and how even in Damascus, upon his conversion, he began to to preach fearlessly in the name of Jesus. We all need someone who will sponsor us, who validate us before others, who know our story and believe in our potential. I'm going to say this again because... Because I want you to write this down. Because I believe this is one of the greatest things we can do in the kingdom of God is to be an advocate for somebody. And an advocate is someone who will sponsor, who will validate, who knows our story and believes in our potential. There are just some doors you can't open for yourself and you need somebody else to do it for you. What we see in this profile of Saul was that Saul, I want you to keep this in mind, is just one story of the many lives that were transformed by the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Paul's life, we see the significance of relationships. Of Ananias who was willing to go and take a risk. Of Barnabas who was putting his own reputation and relationship at risk when he was validating the change that had taken place in Paul's life. And look what it produced. Look what it produced. And after this, the church all over Judea, Galilee, and Samaria... Where did Jesus say that they had to go? He says, I want you to go and make disciples. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. The church, this way of believing, this way of living, this relationally based, driven belief in the resurrection and in the cross, in the way of loving each other and loving God as the fulfillment of the law, 
when you live with a heart of generosity and gratitude, when you share out of your own life those things that might even be costly because somebody else has a need. When you live this way, there is favor with all of the people, that there is the power of God and boldness that accompanies this. And they began to experience a season of peace. The congregations in these local communities now spread out all over the Middle East. They continue to grow larger and larger with the believers, what? Empowered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. They worshiped God in awe and wonder, and they walked in the fear of the Lord. We see the impact of the church. When people begin to continue to live their lives in this way, this is the fourth time we've read a similar section in the birth of the church about how God grows and uses the people of God when they start to learn that their life is not about them. Do you hear me? Which is a big contrast for the church of the U.S. right now. Where everything's about us. The temperature, the volume, the time, the willingness to serve and to sacrifice and to give. And when I'm saying these things, you do understand I'm looking right in the mirror. What I mean by that is that I'm seeing it in my own self too. But the promise is when our lives stop only becoming about self-preservation, we start to see God doing something that is exactly what he's hoping to do. Because what we begin to understand is that every turnaround, every turnaround changes the world. Every turnaround. Stephen's turnaround changed the world. Ananias in Damascus, his turnaround changes the world. This immigrant from Cyprus who comes to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, his turnaround changes the world. And although I don't think he ever lived to realize the impact of his life, this angry, bitter man who wanted nothing more than to wipe out the church becomes one of history's greatest witnesses to the power of the grace and goodness of God. Every turnaround changes the world. 